This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation webinar. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. Now, this is the second uh, Resolution Foundation event of this week. On Tuesday, we were talking about labour market inactivity, people's worries that there aren't enough British workers going out and doing the work uh, in the economy and what the results that was having for the wider economy. But today we're here to talk about something very active rather than inactive, which is monetary policy over the course of the last year, having had a bit of a snooze over the previous decade, where the decisions people are making are being debated much more actively because there are some actually being made. And the balance of judgments is obviously much more difficult because we haven't been through a situation uh, like that. So discussing what that activity level is going to do to the real economy, how much more activity is needed, or whether a phase of inactivity lies ahead of us is what we're going to be doing uh, today. And we're going to do that first of all by hearing from Dr. Catherine Mann, who is an external member of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee. She has to actually do the activity, even if the activity is to vote for inactivity, the, um, on uh, rates. And she's been doing that since September 2021 and has moved to London. We were just discussing the, um, so, you know, London's still a great place to be, all of you watching this uh, abroad. The, um, uh, and prior to that, she's held a whole host of jobs at Citibank uh, and as chief economist um, at the OECD, big roles at the G20 and others. So a huge history before coming to uh, the Bank of England. So she's going to give us her thoughts, her reflections the, um, uh, for about 20 minutes. And then you're going to hear from David Aitman, Professor David Aitman, who is the director of the Qatar Centre for Global Banking and Finance at King's Business School, who are increasingly doing lots of work in the area of macroeconomics the, um, on some of the cutting edge areas. And he's going to give us his, his take on that. And then we'll have questions from... All of you, as always, if you go on to Slido, if you're here, you can put your hand up in the old-fashioned way, but if you go on to Slido and log in, and it's hashtag rising rates, and you can put your questions in there, and we'll come to them. We might also do a poll if kind of we get really excited and energetic during the course of the event. So that is the plan. Catherine, it's lovely to have you. Thank you for joining us. Over to you. Thanks very much. Uh, very much appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here at Resolution Foundation. Um, lovely park next door. Uh, hope to be there over the weekend uh, when it's supposed to be sunny, I think. Um, before I start, I'd like to recognize um, the two members of my team, uh, Natalie Burr, who's my economist, and Leonard Brandt, who's my economic advisor, who of course have played a very big role uh, in my time at the bank and of course have played a very big role in this speech as well. So let's, uh, let's start here. So you can tell what I'm going to talk about, expectations, lags, and the transmission of monetary policy. So economists often reference the long and variable lags of monetary policy. It was first introduced by Milton Friedman in 1961. Now in the central banking world, 18 to 24 months is often quoted as how long it takes for monetary policy to feed through to inflation. This has become a sort of folk wisdom, but the economic and policy environment over the past few years has prompted me to examine these lags. In the following uh, 20 minutes, maybe a little bit more than that, um, I'm going to present some data and research, uh, a new financial conditions index. We're going to see a model of sequential shocks and expectations in a theoretical model. This is econ, after all. 
Uh, and I will argue that financial markets have absorbed a substantial degree of the tightening to date, that the sequence of shocks and the embedding of inflation risks cause a troubling change in expectations formation via an increase in the share of backward-looking participants in the real economy. Those two together risks a worse inflation and uh, output outcome in the longer term. So this leads me to my conclusion that further tightening and sooner rather than later likely is needed to ensure the effectiveness of monetary policy to achieve the 2% objective sustainably in the medium term. So to structure the content, let me start with the transmission mechanism. So what we have here is a stylized representation of the main channels through which monetary policymakers expect changes in policy rates to transmit through the economy. The effectiveness of monetary policy is influenced by the functioning of these individual channels and the interactions between them. As well, there are factors outside the central bank's control and interactions among those channels can amplify or dampen the pass-through of any given policy choice. So you can see all of the places where long and variable lags might show up, but collectively we're talking about the effectiveness of monetary policy. Now the first stage, which is kind of the upper half, uh, comprises the transmission from a change in the policy rate uh, through to financial markets. Now our policy rate, of course, is bank rate. Changes in the policy don't necessarily transmit instantaneously, but rather, of course, through different speeds, through different financial market variables, and of course, this is one source of the long and especially variable lags of monetary policy. The second stage of the transmission mechanism, which is the second half, describes the pass-through of changes in financial conditions, financial conditions to the real economy through the price-setting decisions of firms, wage negotiation behavior of firms and households, as well as their spending, savings, and investment decisions. So there are definitely a lot of potential lags there. Now expectations, something I've spoken quite a bit about, and it's expectations of everything. It spans that entire uh, uh, line across both channels and into all dimensions. So expectations of everything, policy, prices, demand, supply, these influence the financial and real side channels, but of course with different lags and with different degrees of forward and backward looking assessments of current data and the future. And of course there are shocks and there are a lot of possible shocks that we have to address and those fiscal policy, trade linkages, commodity prices, risk preferences, and so forth. So of course in recent years, economies and central banks across the world have faced a series of these shocks. And of course, we've got to, affect, we've got to figure out how have they influenced the long and variable lags, the effectiveness of how changes in bank rate, which is up at the top, affect the real economy and particularly inflation. So for the next couple of minutes, I'd like to focus on the top part of the uh, transmission mechanism, the transmission mechanism of monetary policy through financial markets. So let's start with the bank rate. Um, okay, so we've increased our bank rate 
uh, by 390 basis points since last December. But for a variety of reasons, specifically the unconventional monetary policy tools that have been deployed over the last decade or so, the policy rate alone, which is an aqua here, does not always provide an accurate reading on the monetary policy stance. So if we look at this chart, which is uh, bank rate and the shadow bank rate, should monetary policy stance be judged by the aqua, by the orange, by the level of either of them, the change, and against kind of what historical uh, time frame. So compared to the historical average, the monetary policy stance is still loose. Kind of look across at uh, the end point relative to the starting point. Compared to the post-GFC period, monetary stance is tighter. We know where the GFC is. It's where everything goes down. Um, but research also finds and this is important when we think about the starting point and the change, research also finds that the extent to which monetary policy affects inflation depends on thresholds. That is, tightening from a loose stance, that really low orange point, has less of an effect on inflation than tightening from a tight stance. And of course, the MPC started tightening from what was a record accommodative policy stance due to the bank's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's where we are with regard to bank rate and the first step in the transmission mechanism. Should we start at the orange? Where are we with regard to the endpoint? So it's not entirely clear what the tightness of our stance is. So let's move on to different parts of the transmission mechanism. A key part is household debt servicing costs. What we have here, and any of you who have a mortgage probably know exactly what this chart looks like, um, shows the level of mortgage rates at two-year and five-year horizons and maturity-matched OIS reference rates. That's kind of where the base is for the mortgage rates. So the chart can also show you the spreads as the difference between the two lines. Up until the GFC, again, we know where that is in the chart. We don't need to draw a line. It's already there. Uh, up until the GFC, mortgage and reference rates basically moved very closely together. Now, that broke down in the financial crisis. Spreads widened as reference rates fell in response to the policy rate falling as well as QE. But mortgage rates fell only very slowly over that decade, and they have not yet recovered the level of pre-crisis spreads. Now, if we zoom in to the time since when we started increasing bank rate, we can see that the mortgage rates tracked reference rates quite closely, initially at least, on the way up. They have somewhat retraced their recent spike around the mini budget, uh, the turmoil that was in September of last year, but they haven't fallen as much as reference rates. So the pass-through, that is the lags, from changes in risk-free rates to mortgage rates appears to be state-dependent. That's where the variable comes in, variable part of the variable lags. And this suggests that there's more rapid transmission as interest rates rise and slower transmission as interest rates fall. 
But what you can see here is that there has been some absorption of the increase in uh, bank rate uh, because there's been a retreat from, uh, even though we have continued to increase bank rate, there has been a retreat in household debt servicing costs. Now, global factors also affect the transmission mechanism as measured by the exchange rate. What we have here is a decomposition of the moves in the sterling dollar exchange rate uh, into contributions from monetary policy, macroeconomic factors, and risks, different kinds of risks. So normally, if we were talking about this in a sort of an Eco 101 class, uh, other things being equal, a rise in the UK interest rate should cause sterling to appreciate relative to other currencies. But of course, what we've seen here in the chart is a marked depreciation instead. Of course, that's because we're in a global economy and we also have to think about what's happening elsewhere. So now the chart covers the entire MPC cycle and sterling has depreciated by 10%. Now up until the end of 2022, that's kind of uh, sort of in the, kind of the deep part of the chart, uh, the contribution of US policy and macroeconomic factors have outweighed the MPC's tightening. On the other hand, the aqua part, the aqua part of the chart, which starts to be apparent, particularly sort of in the late summer, uh, now these reflect the pricing of UK policy and domestic macroeconomic factors, and these have increased. What this implies is the actions that we have taken, that the MPC has taken, uh, in, in the absence of those actions, the exchange rate that sterling likely would have been even weaker. So another factor weighing on sterling, as seen through the lens of this model, is a persistent UK-specific risk premium. That's that light purple part. Uh, now this captures the reduced appetite for sterling assets that's not apparently related to the direct pricing of monetary policy and future macroeconomic conditions. That's all the stuff on the top above the zero line. Now a summary statistic of the first stage of the transmission mechanism, this is our summary statistic of the first stage of the transmission me mechanism, is a new measure of the aggregate financial conditions in the UK. There's a lot of details in the published text for how we have derived this. But it is a summary of the uh, components, some of which I've discussed here and other which uh, are also uh, discussed in more detail in the, in the text. So this is supposed to be a, a summary statistic of the financial conditions facing the real economy. Now looking at this financial conditions index implies that UK financial conditions are at the moment, which is all the way at the end, are not much tighter than on average. Again, draw that line through from the 1997 period. So it's not that much tighter on average relative to historical standards. But coming out of a decade of short rates at the effective lower bound and relatively loose financial conditions, we've had to come a long way. And as I note, noted before, looking at the, um, uh, at the, at the uh, household debt servicing costs, there has been a retreat, a loosening of financial conditions since last fall. 
So we had to come a long way, but yet there's been a loosening. So we're left with a conundrum of to what extent tightening, which is from the bottom to the top, and then loosening, to what extent does that matter in terms of financial conditions? Or does tightness matter? Just the end point. Which one of these is most important for the transmission mechanism to the real economy and inflation? Just looking at this chart, I would say we have more to do. Financial conditions are looser relative to them, what they might be otherwise due to the depreciation of the sterling uh, and also a declining equity risk premium. Now, why has there been a loosening? An important feature of financial markets is that they are forward-looking and, and they have been absorbing some of the intended tightening uh, and perhaps taking into account the projected future loosening of policy that some have suggested. And these impact the long and variable lags of folk wisdom. So now I've gone through a variety of aspects of the financial transmission mechanism. Now let's talk about what we know about uh, what, might, how my, what might be the impact on the real economy. So I'm going to move to um, a, a, a particular example of how we try to evaluate the impact of monetary policy on uh, the real economy and inflation. Now, this is a canonical type of model, and it's the kind of model that would have been used uh, to uh, de derive the 18 to 24-month lag of the um, folk wisdom. But times have changed since that model was originally designed. And this particular model, which is, again, is similar, but is more up to date in terms of, of the underlying construction, um, we're going to uh, address um, what a monetary policy surprise and the impact it might have on a canonical economy. Again, this is the UK economy, though. So this is all UK data. Now, uh, I might note that this uh, is a uh, model derived from both uh, bank authors as well as an author who now is at the Resolution Foundation. So if there are any questions, we can ask him. So starting at the top uh, left panel, a 100 basis point monetary policy shock has a persistent effect on the one-year nominal interest rate. And it lasts for about 12 months after the shock hits. So what we're trying to do here is just figure out how does monetary policy work in the real economy uh, using, as I say, UK data. Now, the monetary policy shock has a significant and a delayed response on the level of real GDP. That's the lower left. And that's consistent with the 18 to 24 months of the long and variable lag story. However, we care particularly about the impact of a monetary policy action on inflation. Is it 18 to 24 months or not? So the lags on inflation are very different when we look at this um, more up-to-date uh, model. As the bottom right panel shows, the effect on CPI is not only statistically significant and negative, but also instantaneous. We're looking at the lower right-hand panel here. In the model, the fast pass-through of monetary tightening relies on the exchange rate appreciating on impact, and that's what you see in the upper right. So of course, this is a simplified version of the world. Uh, it's only a single monetary policy surprise. 
The only one who's doing it is UK policymakers, uh, which of course uh, really emphasizes the important role of the exchange rate. Nonetheless, with regard to inflation, the folk wisdom of 18 to 24 months working only through the GDP channel seems too long. Now, we also want to think about where we are um, in, with regard to another key element of the transmission mechanism uh, between financial conditions uh, and monetary policy, financial conditions in the real economy. And so I'm going to move to another way of evaluating the conduct of monetary policy and the relationship to the real economy. So inflation has been surging and has been persistently high over the last 18 months. Could high inflation itself affect the monetary policy transmission mechanism? So to examine these questions, I turn to a so-called toy model, which focuses on a particular concern, uh, and it formalizes that concern. And of course, this is my concern about inflation uh, expectations, which I first started to draw my attention to uh, more than a year ago in a speech last year in February. So the question is, what happens to the behavior of macroeconomic aggregates, particularly inflation, if people begin to form backward-looking inflation expectations? So to give you a quick summary, I find that a higher degree of backward-lookingness, which I can assure you Google Speller does not recognize, a higher degree of backward-lookingness generates more inflation persistence, even if the underlying shocks are the same. It also effectively reduces the effectiveness of monetary policy to control inflation and thereby worsens any inflation activity trade-off in the face of a shock. Now, all of this might be academic if we couldn't find evidence that people's expectations be come forward or backward looking? Do they change? How stable are they? So is there evidence of the, that the degree of forward and backward lookingness can change? So researchers using UK data, and the paper is cited in, in, the, in the published text, um, they have shown that the share of backward looking agents has varied significantly over time. In particularly, that share of backward looking agents is particularly high when energy prices surge. So of course, we're interested in that. So what we're showing in this chart are three different uh, cases for a model economy. This model economy faces a cost push shock, such as we have had two of, at least two of, in terms of the uh, supply chain bottlenecks and then the energy prices, cost push shocks. So it's the same economy facing this, uh, uh, th three economies facing a same cost per shock, and the central bank in each case is following a balanced Taylor rule. In other words, they're going to react to both deviations from uh, inflation from target and output from equilibrium. So the only thing that is different about these three economies is the share of backward-looking price setters. In the baseline, which is our aqua there, all firms are fully forward-looking and model-consistent in their expectations. So this is our rational expectations world. In this economy, the cost book shock and associated central bank response, because the central bank still has to respond to this cost book shock, has a very limited and short-lived impact on activity and prices. 
The output gap jumps on impact. You can see it going down, uh, but quickly returns to zero. Uh, inflation rises uh, on a year-on-year basis. It peaks after four quarters, uh, but then reverts towards target. Now, let's introduce a modest degree of backward-looking inflation expectations formation. Same shock, same table, Taylor rule for the central bank. This is the orange economy. Now, the behavior of the output gap and inflation change significantly with this increase in the share of backward-looking uh, agents. The output gap is more negative for a longer period of time. Inflation peaks higher and remains above target for an extended period of time. Now, if we increase the share of backward-looking agents even more, which of course is the purple economy, both output and inflation display a pronounced hump-shaped pattern and are away from equilibrium for the entirety of the plotted period, which is four years. So with more backward-looking agents, the output loss is greater, the inflation deviation from 2% is greater, and both of these deviations persist for longer. So bad news all around. What are the central banks doing uh, behind the scenes to follow their bail balanced Taylor rule? It's an important component because, of course, we are the central bank. And so what are we doing in, in these three different economies? What we have to do is, as the degree of backward-lookingness increases, we have to continue raising the nominal interest rate by more and for longer in order to get the real rate to, to uh, be positive. Uh, the central bank uh, in the purple economy must keep restrictive real rates longer in order to get us back ultimately to equilibrium. Now these pictures also reveal an important nonlinearity generated by the uh, formation of inflation expectations. So even though the step from, from aqua to orange to purple is in equal increments, you can see that the change in the behavior is increasingly stark. Not only does more backward-lookingness worsen the trade-off between inflation and output, but every additional step worsens that trade-off by more than the last. So when we have the increased share of backward-looking agents, firms, price setters, the lags of the monetary policy transmission mechanism lengthen, and you can see this by the longer period of time the increasingly long period of time away from neutral in these charts. Now I'll note uh, in this exercise that the share of backward-looking firms in the purple economy is 80%, which is what the researchers find in their work for years when energy prices surged. So let's actually look at what happens to inflation given the same central bank rule um, for these three economies. So this chart indexes the output loss to be the same across all economies. So it's taking that previous exercise, taking those big differences between the, between the aqua, the orange, and the purple on the output side, it indexes them to be the same so that we could just look at the differences in uh, the implications um, for inflation of a monetary policy shock. In other words, what the central bank is trying to do in order to get us back to equilibrium. Um, so what we see, can see here is the change in the transmission of monetary policy into prices. 
as I say, by construction, the chart, uh, the tightening yields the same amount of change in activity. So we can read these lines as a dynamic slope of the Phillips curve under conditions of changing expectations formation. An increasing degree of backward lookingness implies, you know, like, why does this happen, right? This is the question. An increasing degree of backward lookingness implies a shrinking share of price setters in the economy that consider supply and demand today or in the future when they make their decisions. They're looking backward. They're not looking current or into the future. That's exactly what backward-lookingness means. Therefore, their importance for aggregate inflation falls. Inflation becomes more persistent because firms and price setters believe it is going to be persistent. Now, from a monetary policy perspective, with a high share of backward-looking agents, monetary policy effectiveness, whether directly or on expectations or through the output gap channel, is greatly diminished. Monetary policy needs to be increasingly restrictive to return the inflation rate to target. So are we in the purple world? I'm not going to say we're in the purple world. Uh, but we need to be aware of how important the inflation expectations process is for the effectiveness of monetary policy. We, we want to reduce the risk of ending up in that purple world. So I've shown you several different models based on data, but they've been stylized. So what does all this mean for monetary policy for real? So typically, uh, we assume that the world is stable, um, and so that the estimated relationships, say, between bank rate and inflation are also stable. And we can look to these when deliberating our monetary policy stance. This is the folk wisdom of 18 to 24 months. So what I've done here in the last uh, 25 minutes. Um, I've presented state-of-the-art evidence, which shows that in normal times, the monetary transmission into inflation is, in fact, much faster, and it peaks within the first year. So that would be normal times. However, I've also reviewed other factors that are relevant for the effectiveness of monetary policy today uh, in the face of shocks, in particular. These include the transmission of monetary policy to financial markets, which has been quick but incomplete and not all in the direction of tightening, and that the degree of forward and backward-lookingness and expectations formation deeply influences the effectiveness of monetary policy. So I've discussed quite a number of speeches that I would have preferred a more front-loaded monetary policy path this year. In fact, monetary policy has been historically aggressive, but perhaps insufficiently so relative to the multiple shocks, the behaviors pushing up inflation, and the initially accommodative starting point. Collectively, all this adds up to financial conditions that are looser than are what are likely to be needed to moderate the embedding of ongoing inflation into the wage and price-setting paths. I worried that this constellation will yield extended persistence this year and next. The resulting long period of time above the 2% target could increase the degree of backward-lookingness or catch-up behavior in the system. Given that the risk of increasingly persistent 
in, uh, inflation rises disproportionately, that's that nonlinearity, with the share of backward-lookingness. I believe more tightening is needed. And I caution that a pivot is not imminent. In my view, a preponderance of turning points, which I discussed in yet a different speech, I do not see that yet, the preponderance of turning points in the data. Now, to conclude, we have an inflation remit, uh, those of us on the MPC, and we're going to achieve it one way or another. Uh, failing to do enough now risks the worst of both worlds, a higher inflation and lower activity of the purple world. Because under that case, monetary policy will have to stay tighter for longer to ensure that inflation returns sustainably back to the 2% target. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Catherine, that definitely wins the prize for the most hawkish speech of 2023 so far. And we'll find out whether it stays that way by the end of the uh, year or not. Not really yet. David, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, let me start by saying thank you, Torsten. I hugely um, uh, appreciate the invitation, and I think the work you do here is fantastic. So thank you very much. Catherine, as well, um, I really enjoyed reading your speech and listening to the kind of slightly fuller version um, today, and I found it very thought-provoking. I used to work at the Bank of England for like the best part of two decades, so I did think about transmission mechanism issues. It was nice to kind of come back to the so I was going to begin by saying you've taken on a very challenging topic and you should be admired for that. Not all MPC members do try and say something about the level of rates and whether you're actually, you think you're stimulating the economy or not right now. So I think that's a huge credit for you. Um, I also kind of, I like the fact that you're trying to set out your view about the transmission mechanism here. I tried to go back to bank publications to see what was the last official document of the MPC that sets out your collective view about how this tool you've got works? I think the answer is 1999. I think it's all the way back to that QB article that the initial MPC put out. So one call from me would be, I think it's time for you guys to refresh that. The world's changed a lot since, <laughs> since then. And uh, you know, it's evidenced a little bit. I noticed you showed a, an ECB version of the transmission mechanism which you had to use because there isn't a, an internal one. In my remarks, I want to take a step back a little bit. I mean, it's going to be framed in a very similar way. Um, but I'm interested in the question, we've increased bank rates, what, almost 400 basis points in a little over a year. That's a pretty, pretty aggressive change, I think. Yet, inflation remains 10%, stubbornly high. Wage growth is very strong. So the kind of question for me... One instead. Great. Thank you. Apologies. Um, so the question really is, what's going on? You know, what's this? What explains this disconnect? And you really touched on this in in your speech. And I think there are three arguments from my perspective. So one is the Friedman log and variable mm. lags you talked about. Um, you know, in a nutshell, the effects of the tightening over this year, or sorry, over 2022, are in the post. We'll feel them. Mm this year and next. I think argument two is that the transmission mechanism, for whatever reason, has become blunted 
temporarily, and you kind of speak about this in your remarks as well. There is a third one, which is interest rates have never been that powerful, so we shouldn't have expected a big impact. Now, that I'm going to start with that, because it might seem completely heretical. Um, it is actually the view that's embodied in the bank's macro forecasting model, Compass. So if you look at the, the official publication of that paper, the impact of a, it shows the impact of a 25 basis points rise in bank rates. That's about 10 basis points on inflation. So you've done eight of those, if I'm, if I'm or, or a little bit more than eight. But um, you're not going to have a huge impact on the overall inflation rate. So that's the kind of multiple we're talking about. Now, I, I think those numbers are completely implausible <laughs> from, for where we are right now. They're basically standard multipliers for the transmission mechanism of monetary policy that probably work okay in normal times when we're in fine-tuning mode, but I think are hugely misleading for this type of environment. So I would expect the impact to be much bigger right now than historically has been the case. So I actually had the exact opposite prior to what you said in your speech, which is, I think, starting at a very low interest rate position, and I'll explain why in a second, I would expect the rate rises we've done to have a far bigger impact than, than normal. I'll come back to that in a second. So let me turn to the, the second argument I gave is that the transmission mechanism might be blunted right now. Um, I think, I don't find the arguments for that compelling. In a, and, I, and I'll be clear, I mean in a structural way it's blunted. So one reason is, I think a very straightforward reason, is just the, the size of the debts positions, both in the private and public sector in the UK. So household and corporate debt is very high, despite all the kind of macroprudential tools and the financial crisis. We're basically at the same level we were on the eve of the financial crisis in terms of the overall debt to GDP ratio, looking at the private sector. It's obviously much higher for the public sector. So just purely mechanically, that means any increase in interest rates you do is going to have a larger redistribution of wealth from... Um, from borrowers to savers, so the normal argument is we think savers have a lower marginal propensity to consume, um, therefore you'll be having a larger impact on aggregate demand from your, your rate hikes. So I'd be kind of interested in your reaction to that type of argument, because you don't really talk about that in, in the speech. I would, I mean, you can add into that set of issues the huge cost of living crisis we're, we're experiencing in the, in the economy, which I think means that a lot of households, I mean, Torsten, you're much better placed to know than I, I would expect lots of households and corporates to be kind of living very close to having run down liquidity buffers, basically. So liquidity constraints being tightened a lot more uh, or on the brink of tightening. In the context of your DSG model, that's a larger share of hand-to-mouth consumers, say. Um, and so I, that was really on the private debt side. I think that's also true on the public debt side. So we know that public debt is, the fiscal position is very precarious. We've found that out very recently. We also know that the effects of QE are, they shorten the effective maturity of the consolidated debt position of the UK. So that again means that all the tightening you're doing is gonna have a much faster and bigger impact on the public sector's to capacity to, to support demand in the economy. So I'm, those arguments for me suggest that the effects of rate hikes 
I don't see evidence that we've structurally changed the impact of rate hikes at a lower direction. I think it could be the opposite, actually. We're having a larger impact. Now, let me come to the third claim, which is, you know, is there something special about what's going on right now as to why we're not, we're not seeing the impact of, of the rate hikes you've done? You, I like very much the financial conditions measure you showed. I, I also think that's, that's a nice way of viewing the world. I'm going to come back to some remarks that I just jotted on the, on the specifics you showed. Um, what would I say? Um, sorry, sorry, let me just make sure I've... Um, I would say one thing is financial conditions are very volatile. So we could easily be in a world where the US um, cycle changes a little bit, and that will have a, an instant impact on UK financial conditions. So I'm not sure that's a kind of a reliable anchor for us to say um, we have a weaker transmission mechanism right now. The other point I was going to make is I was surprised you didn't talk more about real rates in the speech. So all of the stance metrics you showed, they're all framed in terms of the nominal rates, the nominal level of financial conditions. Now, that might actually be, maybe these factors are very important right now because of the debt-type channels I was talking about. But I think, you know, from a real rate perspective, that would support your argument that maybe we haven't done enough tightening yet. Bank rate's 4%, inflation's 10 So we're very negative in, that, in, in real rate space. So to summarise what I was going to say based on the version of the speech you gave me, it's I, I kind of don't think the evidence is that compelling that we've structurally weakened the transmission mechanism. I think if anything, you're probably going to have a larger impact right now. That's my that's my my view. And if I have just two minutes, go on two minutes. Left, we're very minutes. liberal people here. Okay, I wanted to just react to a couple of things you said in your uh, very thought-provoking speech. So, on the expectations idea and we're increasing the share of backward looking. I guess I always feel people are more backward looking than economists assume. That's one reaction. I think it strikes me there are probably two channels at work here. This is the time it pays to be collecting information about the future. Right. Yeah. So I, I, one argument is I would expect people to be a little bit more forward looking right now than mm. they traditionally have been. And I think you're using it as a, sur as a surrogate term for indexation and catching up for what's happened in the past. And that I, I do agree with. We're probably likely to see, see some of that. Um, a second one, very quickly, is on the FCI measure, I look forward to reading the paper, I was very surprised that the, that metric says that current financial conditions are, are as tight as 2007, 2008, which doesn't feel that plausible to me. As in they're looser? I think they're much, much looser right now than they were in as we were heading in in, in the global financial crisis. Okay, well, thank yeah. you for the flashback to that traumatic period of life. Um, uh, very good. Okay, thank you very much indeed, David. Lots of food for thought in that as um, as well. Catherine, before we we'll open up uh, generally, and as I said to you all before, you can um, uh, ask questions on Slido. It's hashtag rising rates, or you can put your hand up. But do you want to come back just briefly on that? I mean, the big picture um, point from David, which is maybe raising rates from such low levels because of the gearing effect, you'd, amongst other things, actually you just get a really powerful tightening effect. Well, you know, I, um, I hear what you're saying, but um, I go back to the threshold regressions, the threshold analysis, which shows that if you tighten from a very loose condition, you don't have as much of an impact as if you tight, tighten from a tightening position. 
Um, and so when we look at that original bank rate chart, which has the shadow rate, um, there's an awful lot of tightening to do before you get to anything that would be considered a threshold. So I think that's, that's uh, uh, an important way to look at it. Um, you know, I'm, I, uh, on the real rates, well, there's a, there's a whole other chart about real rates. <laughs> so go look, if you want to know about real rates, go look at that. Um, so, but it's, you're, you're very, uh, that, that's very true. Um, and, and they are very negative. <clears throat> and one of the things that is the greatest concern about the uh, embedding of inflation, the persistence of inflation, the extended period of inflation above target, uh, and all of these things contribute to the backward-looking nature, the backward-lookingness. Um, all of those things end up making the real rate be negative for longer. Um, and so if the real rate is negative for longer as a central banker trying to offset that, um, I have to have a nominal rate higher for longer. And so uh, I'm trying to avoid being in a situation where I have to be higher for longer. And my view is if I do more now, sooner, then I will not. Then I will forestall some of that embeddedness, persistence, uh, backward-lookingness. Great. The um, you know the reason we have external members of the MPC is because groupthink is a bad idea. The um, allegedly that's what we at least in theory say. People hate it when it actually turns up, but in theory that's why we did it in the first place. The um, now, so I thought we should dig into some of the areas where what you're presenting to us is a kind of a challenge to some of the consensus, mm. or at least the thinking in these um, spaces. So let's do, I've got a few of these, because I think you're being a very good external member, so there's quite a few where you're nudging us on the consensus. So here's one. If you compared this speech to, we took at random a the modal or a typical MPC members over the last decade, their speech would have had, prior to the, prior to the last 18 months, mm. their speech would have had on average, half the speech with a detailed explanation of why R styled, so the equilibrium interest rate had fallen um, uh, and, and was going to stay fallen forever, definitely, 100% definitely. The, um, now, your speech doesn't meant get into equilibrium interest rates particularly. And if you look at your chart on, one of your first charts, nudging us on is the level of tightness high, then you're there basically taking a measure of tightness versus the the 2000s, right? So the pre-financial crisis decade and saying, we're not tight compared to them in levels terms, looking at bank rate plus a bit of QE measurement, right? The, um, the standard response to that, the consensus that you're implicitly challenging is, our style is lower than it was then, or at least lower than we kind of thought it was then, whether we were right or wrong. Um, and so you don't need to go as high to get the same level of tightness. What's, what do you think? Well, I mean, the, the, there, there are two ways to respond to that. One is to say, I have an R star in my mind, and I'm going to do what I need to do to get there. Uh, and that's my, you know, that's my North Star, as they say. The other one is to say, um, I have a journey in front of me uh, that I have to take before I get there. Yep. Um, and R star is endogenous to my journey. And so what I'm focusing on is the journey, not the destination. Okay. The, um, okay, I'll try a less subtle way of asking the question. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, I think there's, there's a few. Here we go. The, um, here's a first question from a pub, which is basically this is, you know, I'm always too subtle in life, famously. So, uh, 
what has happened? Do we agree with those modal, those typical speeches of the last decade that our star is a lot lower than we thought it was in the 2000s or not, basically? And if we do, is it because we wrote silly speeches in the 2010s or is it because our star has come down after the pandemic? Well, I gave a speech sort of um, April, I think, about uncertainties facing monetary policymakers. And one of them was about our star. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, I uh, basically came back to the view that art, you know, and that where what, what is our star? What is our, our what depend? You know, what what is the foundation of our star? Uh, and ultimately, it's productivity growth. Um, and so, if we think that productivity growth is um, ultimately uh, permanently lower, then so is our star. Um, and on the other hand, if we, we can tell a story, I mean, I was chief economist at the OECD, so when, I can When those speeches were getting written. I can tell the story, I, I did those speeches too, where you can tell the story that, um, that for example, green investment uh, and the innovation associated with uh, meeting the challenge of climate change is very much a productivity enhancing type of prospect. Now, I'm not going to get into any like policies about how to get there. That's not my job. But I can say that, uh, again, if I wear my OECD hat, uh, that is something that would tell a story where productivity growth would be higher, uh, and so would our star. Okay. The, um, so I'm taking that as a, your, your lack of consensusness is mainly on the journey. Yeah. Uh, part of your discussion. Okay, that's very interesting. The second consensus bashing, the, um, although you've partly rejected my consensus bashing, but anyway, second one is, so take the speech as a whole, one way of reading it is a lot of our discussions about getting um, the policy mix right now are focused on going right level of interest rates, effect on the real economy, GDP supply and demand, leading to changes in rates and you're nudging us on think a lot more about the exchange rate and on expectation parts of the transmission mechanism and a bit less on the straight through to gdp and then on to cpi mm -hmm. the um, is that a fair is that a fair dif difference in your approach to a lot of how people are thinking about the current conundrum i, I think that summarizes it very well uh, sort of the olden days view of the transmission of monetary policy to inflation uh, has to go through GDP, right? You got to go through GDP because that is, uh, you know, uh, higher interest rates, uh, reducing um, consumer uh, consumption because of higher interest costs, making saving more um, uh, favorable, so you re reduce consumption for that reason, higher interest rates reducing business investment uh, because, of, you know, uh, fewer projects for each hurdle made to return, uh, you know, consumption and investment um, uh, shrinking, uh, that leads to your GDP effect. And only then, only then do you get the disciplining of pricing behavior of firms yep. uh, and wage negotiating behavior of workers because they face higher unemployment. So you have to go through the real economy in order to get, <clears throat> as I say, the disciplining effect on wages and prices. Um, in a world where you have expectations playing an important role, um, you don't, you don't have to do that. You, have a direct, you can have a direct effect on uh, the formation of inflation expectations through monetary policy, uh, and you can also work through um, the, you know, the, the degree to which there is embeddedness in, in forward and backward-looking agents. That's very clear. What do you think, David? Where's your, where's your exchange rate, expectations, real economy, transmission weight? 
Um, I'm probably a little bit more, I mean, I agree with everything you said, but I'd probably tilt things a little yeah. bit more towards the real economy factors still be important. I mean, the UK is a very small open economy, so the exchange rate's always been a key part yeah. of our yeah. transmission mechanism. I guess it's just the expectations angle that I have a slightly different perspective on. Okay. You know, there's a there's that old Larry Ball literature about you can costlessly disinflate if you if everyone's got rational expectations. And ah. you know, that wasn't ah. that wasn't true back then, right? Larry, <laughs> Larry, Larry Ball and I were both there. at MIT together, so uh, <laughs> is that good I, or bad? Well, no, I think we got the, we, what it means is we have the same training. Okay. So that we we uh, we can have a conversation and and disagree and and, and you do. but we come from the same come from the same uh, DNA. Okay. But uh, rational expectations is the key assumption there, and, and you know, that was the Aqua Group there, not the orange or the purple. Fine. Yeah. And you'll definitely say we're not there, even if we're not in the purple. Uh, I don't. I think we gave up on rational expectations a long time ago. A while back. Right. <laughs> okay. Let's keep going through. The, so let's go through uh, expectations then. So let's go through these transmission mechanisms. Yeah. I'm going to come back to the exchange rate in a second. Let's do expectations. The, um, so Chris Giles from the Financial Times. Chris, you haven't even bothered to turn up, but we're still going to ask your question because you know we're a customer-orientated organization here. So the, um, is backward-lookingness just another way of talking about second-round effects? So he's basically nudging us, okay, is it really just a way of, like, it, in the way we think about the GDP effects more normally, the, um, uh, is that really what's going on, or are you making a more rooted-in-expectations per se argument? The two of them are related, but I think there are um, some insights that we can get from thinking about backward-lookingness in our, in our toy, toy model that um, are important ingredients when thinking about the monetary policy decision. Uh, specifically, the nonlinearity associated with the increasing share of backward-looking agents in the economy. Uh, and that nonlinearity, I think, is something that does not come through when you just think about second round effects. Um, it almost implies that sec you know, second round effects have another round which increases the power of the second round effect. So, you know, so it's not like a second round and then it stops. It, um, the, as I say, the extended period of time above 2% increases the, the benefits of being a backward-looking agent. I mean, why do we think that, backward, you know, that there are forward and backward-looking agents? Why does it change over time? It's because if you're an agent and you, you, you're making a, a judgment, you're making a pricing decision, you know, which, one is more, is, which one do you gain from, the mo from, from, a, from a utility standpoint or internal to the model uh, gain? Uh, it's because you're backward looking. Right. So they're they're rationally they're, rational. Yeah. They're, um, Where they're profit maximizing. Put them in. Yes, that makes uh, complete um, sense. I'm, I'm guessing you're placing more weight on traditional second round anxieties. Well, well, I like the way you framed it in terms of like what's the what's the rational, what's the profit maximizing yeah. decision. But I guess a year ago, or before inflation started increasing, uh -huh. then you would have wanted to be very forward looking, right? So right. it's it, these things change. Well, let's do, well let's go through that a bit actually. So. And let's do this in the, t there's a good question here, which is basically, okay, let's, let's, let's take as a given that people have become a bit more backward looking over time. Okay, so let's like not debate whether they have or not. Let's just assume they have becoming a bit more backward looking. One reading of that is if you're an NPC member is, oh God, inflation's 10%, so mm -hmm. all these backward looking people are gonna be going mad. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really scary. Another conclusion from the same thought pattern would be, 
most of this inflation is, is um, being driven by a shock, a lot of which we're now learning is more temporary than we kind of feared. Still really bad, but it's more temporary than we feared. We should get big falls just mechanically in CPI mm -hmm. this year. And so insofar as the backward lookingness is the problem, lots of that is going to be bashed out of the agents um, without us having to do very much. And so the backward looking problem is just going to be less of a problem because other things are giving us a fast um, drop. Well, of course, this is the this is the big question. You know, I agree. We're you know certainly there is going to be a mechanical, uh, mechanical or uh, arithmetic drop yeah. in inflation uh, as the uh, based on the full futures curve. Um, although some of that might be attenuated by some institutional elements that are part of the UK uh, energy markets. Um, Sorry, just to be less subtle on the uh, you mean the how we set retail prices? Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is an important part of the... Of the so this is CPI, CPI staying higher in April to July than it would if we let could prices be. feed through. Could be. Um, so you, do, you will have some mechanical reduction in, in, um, in the CPI, but in the time over which it's been high, how sticky are people's expectations? Yeah. How much are they are embedded into uh, contracts, catch-up, uh, and... Um, and I think you know this is a forward. This is a uh, a backward-looking agent looking forward. I think I'm still going to be able to keep my prices high, because they were high last year, and the environment that I was able to enjoy high pricing power last year, I, I'm still going to be able to do that this year. And if anything, I'm going to be able to do it more. Okay. Let's well. Let's go straight from that to the, another question, which is on that exact space, which is basically. So that's like a, that's a view of how the world could look, given how people are responding to the information they're getting. Do you think how how do you, do you, do you take uh, reinforcement of your argument for what inflation expectation surveys in brackets slash financial markets are telling us, mm -hmm. or do you think they tell us something slightly different? But you're taking your judgment anyway for other reasons. So I've talked I've I've um, referred to uh, a number of different survey indicators of inflation expectations yep. over the last year. Um, I've uh, showed in particular the DMP, the Decision Maker Panel Survey, which gives us uh, some a picture on what firms are thinking about uh, with regard to their own pricing uh, situation and also what they think inflation is going to do more generally. So it's both themselves and sort of the aggregate inflation. Um, and I've also referred to um, the uh, household surveys, um, which the bank does um, as well. Now, for both of these survey indicators, we have to look at a near-term one, which is next year, mm -hmm. and then look at sort of like a two- or three-year horizon. And then there's one for the financial markets, too, of course. Um, in all cases, my view is, first, that one must look at the shape of the distribution. Right? Often what we see in the newspaper or something is like the average, it, and it doesn't show us the whole distribution. And I focus a lot on the tails. In other words, how many, you know, what's the percentage or what's the chunk of the responses that are in the high tail, meaning I think inflation is going to be above the average number, versus the left tail. Um, and over the course of the year, there has been more uh, emphasis over the course of 2022, in particular, there was more and more uh, moving into the left tail. So more and more of the distribution was saying, I think inflation is going to be higher uh, in the future. In, the, in my looking at data in the last month, there has been, for the DMP, in particular the Decision Maker Panel, 
a little bit of a pulling in of, of the left tail, but we're still looking, and, and, and for the households, it's still, it's still actually quite high. It's, it's still left tail. Um, but we're also looking at expectations for inflation next year that are way above 2%. So even though it's lower than it was, yeah. you're not getting too chill. You're not, you're, not getting, you're not getting down into the neighborhood where we think can feel comfortable that um, expectations are consistent, medium-term ex- expectations are consistent with the 2% target. On the, on the DMP survey you mentioned, they, um, so if you look at their, uh, what firms are reporting in terms of hiring difficulties, yep. those have obviously come Lots off a lot since the peak in right. the summer. They now look pretty similar to like normal-ish. Let me, we don't have that long a time series, right? But they look like they, look like they looked in the non-panicking about labour shortages bit of the pandemic recovery rather than the, oh my God, I can't hire anybody right. even if I pay them 100k to kind of mm-hmm. flip a burger kind of thing in the summer. So the... Um, so that one reading of that is, although firms do say they expect to pay higher wages in the next year, mm-hmm. okay, they, um, they don't face any more really acute hiring difficulties. So are they really going to pay? If they're not having problems hiring, are firms really going to pay 7% in the private sector? Let's mm-hmm. forget the public sector. That's mm-hmm. a whole other ballgame. But the public sector, are they really going to pay 7% again next year, do you think? Well, And why? So- because uh, they want to retain the workers that they have. So you think it moves to being not the margin, but to the retention? Well, I mean, we have to look at the, I mean, the behavior last year, there was, you know, several different wage um, periods where, where bonuses were paid or top-ups were yep. paid or extras were paid. And that, that um, I think, from my visiting with the agents, which, of course, is what we do, um, and we actually go out and talk to chambers of commerce and we talk to citizens and so forth, um, the view is that we're not, that from the firms anywhere, anyways, that we're not going to have to pay top-ups and bonuses. Yep. But, um, but we, we have, we don't want, lose, we don't want to lose the workers that we have because, it, you know, it, it is expensive to have to, to go out and hire. Um, so we are going to do what we need to do to retain our workers. Um, so that translates, you know, their view is, and again, the agents have their own survey. Um, and then we have the pay surveys. We have lots of different surveys. And we you know, cross-check them and so forth. We're still looking at, uh, you know, pay growth is, is you know, six or seven percent. Yeah. No, no, the, you know? I'll come back in a second to the yeah. actual high level of private yeah. to pay. Uh, okay. Let's, just, uh, let's move on to the exchange rate, which is mm. doing quite a lot of work in your yeah. conversation. So, David, why don't you, so one way of, uh, this is maybe, Kevin can nod if this is a fair uh, summary of the situation, but so one way of looking at this is look, the financial conditions aren't as tight as maybe we would expect or like. Uh, part of that is um, uh, relative interest rates and what's happening to the exchange rate. So we haven't got, like, we've put up UK interest rates. We haven't got the downward pressure on inflation from um, an appreciation because everybody else is at it at yeah. the same, amongst the reasons, but let's keep it simple. Everybody else is at it at the same time. That means that financial conditions aren't as tight as the Bank of England might like or might normally have wanted for that level of tightening, the, um, which is what one of your charts is basically yeah. showing us. The... Um, Another reading is everybody's tightening. Have I told you about spillovers? Actually, if everyone tightens at the same time, yes, the exchange rate channel isn't doing tightening, but everything else is more. Mm. Where are you on spillovers versus exchange rates? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> where am I on that? I haven't thought about that question. You could get, if you could get there very quickly, that'd be great. <laughs> like, um, I'll give you a bit of a warning to come to the same Yeah, question. I think we're hugely dependent 
in the UK on what happens in US financial markets. So that's my answer. Okay, so that's a lots of spillovers. Yep. So you're less worried that we're not tightening enough because the exchange rate can't do any work because it's doing lots of other work. Yeah, and we're not quite so weak again on an ERI basis mm -hmm. as we are against the right, dollar. Right, so right, right. Okay, would well, you explain that to the audience, what, we are, what you're saying? Uh, I think the exchange rate index, which is like a trade-weighted, mm -hmm. broader metric of how we're doing against the basket of currencies, I think that's more like five percent down compared to the ten percent against the dollar. So. But it's not up. In this. It's not up. It's not up. And it's not doing. A, yeah. You're not getting a nice tightening. You're that's not getting a nice UK-specific tightening cycle giving you a appreciation. Catherine, what yeah. do you think? No. So we we um, we have something called the Rigobond of composition. He's he's an economist. Um, so uh, the de the decomposition of of the movement in the interest rates that can be attributed to uh, UK-specific factors versus um, foreign factors, US uh, and uh, Euro area in particular. And uh, as we look at the data most recently, um, we have been getting quite a bit of spillover tightening, about half coming through the foreign tightening. Interesting. Um, so you are getting so yep. yes. so, so yes. So we get less than the exchange yes. rate and we get more other right. stuff, basically. But, but I think it's, you know, as we, you know, I've sort of emphasized in many of my comments um, over over the last year that it's important to decompose uh, whether it's consumers into income deciles or firms into sizes and sectors uh, so that when we think about the impact of monetary tightening like where it's coming from and how broad it is and whether it's you know in interest rates or the exchange rate you are going to have different impacts on, on the economy. And I think that's something that we need to uh, be aware of and, and definitely pay attention to. Mm -hmm. the, the trade channel is an important one right now. Um, and so, um, you know. The data keeps moving around a lot. It does. Um, we'll shortly be publishing a spotlight on what on earth is going on with British trade data for those of you that are really keen. The, um, uh, and it, a lot is going on is the answer. The, um, right, okay, let's kick off into more of the like, what actually should policymakers do in the next year, which is not straightforward because we've got about 10 minutes um, left. So here's a, an unsubtle question, again, from someone who's anonymous, probably because they're asking an unsubtle question, the, um, which is basically the wider guidance from the MPC at recent, um, in recent minutes and others has definitely moved in a dovish direction, or at least in a, we might be done, mm. we may or may not be done. Um, that isn't consistent with the speech you've just given, like, so I can say that bit. The, um, uh, what do you think about that? And why do you answer that question? Jane, can I just ask, grab the, um, the uh, slide clicker, because I want to show a slide, because you, know, you haven't done enough slides today. So, Catherine. So, um, you know, one of the, one of the great uh, strengths of, of the uh, Bank of England's MPC is the transparency of uh, who voted for what yep. and the opportunities that uh, members have to say, communicate why they've why they voted the way they did. <clears throat> so my view is that um, I have an opportunity. You, you know how I vote, and I have the opportunity to talk to you about how I voted, which in the course of um, doing these kinds of speeches to help understand the transmission mechanism of our policy through the economy and the things that I think about. And I view that as, as an important part of my role um, I was a professor for 10 years. I probably always will be one. And so this is kind of what I do. <laughs> no, no, I think the fact that reasonable people are going to be disagree yeah. in a very difficult judgment at a time when we haven't, like we haven't seen this before. Yeah. We haven't lived through this, uh, this mechanism, this, this for way of setting macro policy hasn't done, dealt with this particular problem before. 
the fact that there's disagreements is normal, and if you can't see them, it, what, what would you, because it's always good to like think about what the people that don't agree with you, why do they think that? So right. what do you think is the main thing that's making people on the NPC who don't agree with you come to their other conclusion on part of our reasonable people will come to different conclusions? View. Well, of course, I'm not going to speak for anybody else, oh, um, but, I, but, I do, but I do think that the, uh, and one of the reasons why I have particularly emphasized um, the channels that I've uh, emphasized today, the direct channel of monetary policy on expectations and some of the implications of long periods of time away from two and, the, and how that translates into nonlinearities um, associated with my uh, environment in which I have to make my decisions, the nonlinearities associated with the increasing backward lookingness, um, that uh, uh, I think other people have a more, uh, more traditional view of the transmission mechanism. Yeah, I think that's a fair summary of the um, things. On, so let's, I'm gonna, if we can come bring up the slides back up, I thought I would give us uh, two slides just to give us reasons for why. So why might people that come to the other view, what might they be like relying on data-wise because you know people aren't doing it for fun. The, um, so if we can, right, first one, which is, is the UK, like the UK isn't the US. Mm -hmm. This is showing you a chart from um, National Data on consumption in the UK and the US. You can see two important things here. It turns out Americans will buy never-ending amounts of goods. Uh, there's so many ukuleles have been sold that mm -hmm. we don't know where they keep buying them. They can't all be playing them, but they keep buying more. They're, um, uh, they're partly, and that's partly because demand is just, demand is much stronger in the US than yeah. it is in Europe. I'm using the UK yeah. here, but I could show yeah. you a similar chart for most of Europe. So the nature of the macro and particular monetary mm -hmm. challenge is different. Mm -hmm. The US has a lower inflation rate than us due to pumping loads of gas out of the sand mm -hmm. there, which unfortunately we're not doing. Um, uh, but, may but that doesn't necessarily mean it's got an easier inflation problem to solve. See recent wage mm -hmm. data in the US and the rest. So two questions. One, doesn't this make you a bit relaxed? There is no demand in the UK. There's no demand problem to crush. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, and slightly unfairly, would you rather be a monetary policymaker in the UK right now dealing with that, or would you rather be one in the US dealing with that? I'm pointing at the chart. That. Yes. That. So, so go. Uh, um, the, not, I shouldn't speak for the folks uh, across the pond there who, who probably would be upset if I, if I said they have a much easier task than I do. You think they've got an easier task? They have an easier task. Okay, go on then. Okay. Why? Because... What, what is the challenge, the UK challenge, is it's not as much about demand, it's about supply. Yeah, it's um, in the UK, the labor force participation rate has fallen. In the US, it has arisen. Um, that means there's a, you know, that's part of the supply constraint that we face here. You know, it's an unfortunate thing, but inflation comes from, you know, kind of both the demand and the supply side. Uh, and the supply constraint is a very important one, one here. Um, so, I mean, in some sense, uh, the U.S. demand, you know, demand management channel is a very traditional one, and it is one that is, in principle, amenable to uh, standard monetary policy instruments. Um, the supply challenge is a more difficult one. The inflation generated by the supply side is a more more difficult challenge, but it is still a challenge that we have to we have to achieve. Very good. The, um, and, what, and you take, so you basically, the answer is yes, the UK's demand problem is big, but have you seen its supply problem, basically? Um, uh, we have an inflation problem. 
Yeah, that's the other. That's the that's the that's, yes. Okay, that's fine. The bottom, that's right. the bottom line. Okay, that's very the bottom good. Bottom line. What do you think, David? On this I would have said exactly the same thing. Yeah. Do you think it's harder in the UK? Yeah, I do because it's a bigger supply shock in the UK. If you think it's permanent, yeah. I'm a bit. I'm a bit more cautious on concluding that the inactivity. I mean, the US is actually the is the if anything more similar to the UK on labour market inactivity, particularly amongst older workers. Mm-hmm. But you're right, the aggregates aren't looking as bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a yeah. I think we're all a bit. Uh, so we're over, I think I slightly risk we overweighting the short-term information on the bad, short-term bad news on inactivity mm-hmm. versus the 20-year good news prior to mm. a totally unprecedented pandemic when everyone was told to stay in their bedrooms for two years. But anyway, the, we're going to find out who was right in the course of the next There is the years. B word, which we haven't mentioned. <laughs> all right, all right. Okay, fine. Yeah, let's not do that. We've only got, th- we only got three yeah. minutes. I don't want to get screamed at by the audience is looking very chilled at the moment, so we're not going to do that. Fair enough. Right. Okay, let's do one more on the short-term conundrum because you'll be looking at versions of this chart I've got it. Right, okay. This is three lines. This chart won't be news to you. This is three lines showing you different measures of earnings growth, all the same data. Right? This is all the same data. It's just three different ways of thinking about exactly the same data. So the one you normally see um, is the 12 month. This is all private sector, okay? The public sector, is, the public sector is not interesting in the current discussions about inflation. I don't care what anyone says in government. It's not the issue. It's all about the private sector. So what is the private sector doing? The 12 month rate is showing you the scary thing, okay? Yeah. That's the headline figures we see when we look at uh, the ONS's labour force survey release, release or the AWE release, the, um, and it's showing you 7% uh, private sector wages, and it's kept going up, right? Mm-hmm. So that's like, if you want to be scared, that's the line you look at. The, um, I then said, okay, and that's looking at the annual change. So the level of wage rises this month compared to the same month the year before. The other ones are showing you, okay, okay, there's a big dynamic thing going on here. Things are changing quite rapidly. What's happening to shorter term growth rates in either over six months or over three months? And if you want to be relaxed about, or more relaxed, no one's probably relaxed about 10% inflation, but if you want to be more relaxed, and because you take a what you're calling the more old-fashioned view of how to think about the inflation challenge, if you take the old-fashioned view that you care about GDP, what you actually care about is private sector wages, really probably. So the, the more dovish people on the bank are probably just looking at private sector wages as their metric of what they're anxious about for the transmission mechanism. They're looking at the green line. They're saying, actually, wage growth has been falling since the summer, when the peak of the hiring difficulties were. Um, uh, and so I think Manager Boss is doing its work. We've got some time to go here. We're going to get two things are going to go on. The real economy is already slowing, plus the mechanical drivers up of the high CPI peak are going to drop out, and the two together make me relaxed. My personal view is stepping back, just look at the green line, is both are in just the green line. It has been falling since the summer. It's really high in the private sector. Both those things are going on. Exactly. Uh, so you can really win. But anyway, so Catherine, putting your... your putting some weight on the people that do focus on the GDP mechanism uh, and the real activity. What do you take on earnings? well, I mean, there's, you know, the 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 uh, there's been a moderation in wage growth. Um, it still remains very high. Uh, the longer it remains high, the more challenging it is, or the more incentive there is for firms to continue to price high because they can, because workers, you know, W times L, uh, those who are working um, and who choose to work uh, are getting higher nominal wages uh, for sure, and real wages uh, not. Um, the longer it stays high, then you have this catch up, which, you know, basically 
there's an elevation. It's, you know, think, yeah. thinking about, you know, the airplane trying to land on the runway. You know, it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to land on the runway, ultimately. The question is, how long do you kind of float above before you actually finally touch down? Yeah. Um, and that's really the question, because the longer you float, uh, you know, you're using up a lot more runway there. You got to get to the, you know, two percent at the end of the runway. You got to get, you got to get down before the end of the runway. And if you float a long time, then it's going to be challenging. What do you do? What, 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 Similar. Given, given how weak productivity growth is, seven percent is not consistent with a two percent target. Yeah. So that is a deeply uncontroversial statement, David. Very brave of you. The question is how, how, how much more how relaxed about the tra direction of travel is basically yeah, the question. I think I'm implicitly saying I would, if I was on the MPC, I would also be. You're a hiker man. I'd still be hiking. Right. Good. That's good. That's very. We got to. I think. Right. Let's finish on that then. Basically, what should people do? The um, so you'll get a chance at every MPC meeting for the year. The last question, which we're going to bring up after we've got rid of the slide. The um, I think you're going to see versions of that slide, by the way, a lot over the next six months. So you might as well keep looking out for it. The um, so basically, what do you want done? Um, I am a data-dependent MPC uh, member. Everyone's data-dependent. Well, I, <laughs> I showed you an awful lot of data. You did, you did. Over, uh, you know, I've showed you an awful lot of things about what I look at, um, and I think that you can figure it out. Okay, I'm taking that. Okay, let's try another way. <laughs> Given the data we currently have, 5% peak, optimal? Well, we can go back to November when uh right after the mini budget exercise you know thanks for the flashback to that yeah, as well right? um and uh we made a, a two-pronged uh, statement in november that addressed um both the likely future moves but also made a statement about the uh yield curve at the time yeah okay the um i'm being slow i no, think Towards five. I'm taking five and a quarter. Right. Okay. Fine. All right. It's equals five and a quarter. Okay. So to translate that for the people who were kind of at that time busy smashing their heads on the wall because they were so depressed, what was going on? So you're five-ish. I'm. I. You know. I really have to think about what I'm looking at in terms of my, particularly my expectations formation. Yep. I don't think we are in a restrictive stance particularly. Especially that. if you look at that financial conditions index, there's been a retreat. Very good. Well, that is a good hawkish point to finish on. The, um, so can we all say thank you very much to Catherine, our hawk for the day. The, um, uh, and to David for joining us. Thank you for lots of thoughts. Thank you for all lots of great questions. Sorry I didn't get to, get to everyone's questions. There were lots of them because they were very good. The, um, uh, we'll see you all at a Resolution Foundation event soon. And actually, we should have a speech from another member of the Monetary Policy Committee in a few weeks uh, time. So, you know, come back for more if you were thrilled of this. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.